Hello and welcome to the Travelling Sisterhood of Art Historians podcast. We are Maddie, Freya, Caroline and Serena, four art historians who each week will be chatting to an expert about visual and material culture in the 18th and 19th centuries. Join us on an art historical journey as we think about how images and objects shaped our world. Hello, so this episode we're talking about ceramics. A few months ago Freya and I caught up with Dr Matt Smith who is an artist, curator and professor of craft at the Konstfakt University of Arts in Stockholm where he specialises in ceramics and glass. We chatted about Matt's work including some recent exhibitions, the role of clay and ceramics and divisions between art and craft. But first let's recap what we actually know about ceramics in this period and what we've been reading about this week. So this week I was thinking about how perhaps out of all the materials that we're covering in this series, maybe with the exception of paper, um, ceramic objects are ones that continue to play, I guess, the, the biggest roles in our lives. So I'm sure listeners can go to their own kitchens now and open a cupboard and there'll be you know, ceramic mugs, plates, etc, etc. But I suppose because we're familiar with the feel of ceramics, how they're made, what the material can be used for, and what happens, for example, if it breaks, that maybe it's a little difficult to see sort of past that and to read historical ceramic artifacts in the same way that we might, for example, read a painting or a weapon or whatever. So I've been looking around my home um, at some of the bits of broken and discarded ceramics that I've picked up from things like charity shops and markets. And I'm going to try and describe one piece that I particularly love. So this is a small earthenware mug and it's about two and a half, maybe three inches tall. And it's sort of cream coloured, although dirty and mottled now. And its handle's been broken off a long time ago. So there's sort of these two stumps on the side where a handle would have been attached. And I think it's from the early 19th century, maybe sort of 1830s, 1840s. And its size suggests that it would have belonged to a child. And indeed, the decoration sort of points to this. So it's decorated with two scenes that are both painted in a kind of blue colour. So on one side, we have two boys leaning on a bench in what looks like a schoolroom. One's reading and one is writing on a sort of tablet, maybe made of slate or possibly wax. And on the other side, there is an adult woman who's seated at a table in this more domestic setting. And she's accompanied by a dog at her heels and a small girl who she's helping to arrange some flowers with on the table. And as well as being this like really pretty item, it says so much about the different experiences that boys and girls had in childhood and the sorts of spaces and educations that they had access to. And maybe more than that, I'd like to think, and this is probably wishful thinking, that you know perhaps the, the handle was broken off by an unsteady or a naughty child, maybe carrying their drink in their home or to their schoolroom. So although this is a sort of broken and not particularly valuable object now it gives this lovely I guess sort of intimate view of a child's perspective on the sorts of material landscapes that they were part of and the role that ceramics had within that. That's so fascinating Maddie. I think my mug collection definitely demonstrates the fact that ceramics are an important part of my daily life. Um, unlike Caroline who is the expert on this topic my knowledge of historical ceramics is comparatively limited, although I did for a brief, um, slightly misled time, think that I wanted to become a ceramics expert at an auction house. And this was because I was doing lots of internships at auction houses like Bonhams, uh, where the ceramics expert kind of took me under her wing and she used to give me a lot of um, some of my nicer pieces of ceramics, um, things that were left 
from um, sales that had been not been picked up or had gotten broken in um, stores. And um, she used to kind of sneak them and give them to me. Um, so I have some lovely pool pieces and some Staffordshire things from that time. Um, but speaking of Staffordshire, one of the things that I'm really interested in at the moment is a series of miniature houses made by Staffordshire in the first half of the 19th century. Uh, these were popular well into the 20th century and all attractively painted in an array of pastel tones. And they're like images of perfect houses that you keep in your house, which I think is like a wonderful circularity. But my partner thinks these are absolutely hideous and definitely <laughs> resents me trawling eBay to buy many of them. Um, but for me, they're an amazing reflection of how homeliness and domesticity could come to be encapsulated by the objects within the home and how ceramics often serve in these interesting kind of symbolic functions at this time. I absolutely adore your miniature houses Freya, they really brighten up my Instagram feed. Um, I think how we perceive the value of ceramic objects is really fascinating like you say Maddie, these are objects that are around us all the time and they have a very practical purpose in our day-to-day -day lives. But that everyday nature doesn't mean that they can't also reflect really important things about identity, both the personal and national. So I think I'm probably preaching to the converted here, but sometimes these really small things can have huge meanings and implications. So some of my favourite ceramic objects are commemorative pieces made to memorialise political events or royal deaths, things like that. They offer this material expression of kind of national zeitgeist. What was really uniting people can be found within those everyday items, or at least what manufacturers saw as a sort of lucrative opportunity anyway. Um, so when Princess Charlotte, George IV's daughter, um, very sadly died in childbirth in 1817, there was this explosion of commemorative plates and cups and bowls, which mirrored this, this outpouring of national grief. So the ceramics were printed with her portrait and all sorts of mourning iconography and were incredibly popular. So we often recognize those Charles and Diana plates that were so quintessential of 1980s Britain but there's this much longer history of using ceramics to connect individuals to these broad national events. So ceramics can be this amazing barometer really for national feeling. Yes, this is so true, Serena. And actually I've just been working on a project trying to sort of pinpoint when this sort of commemorative culture of ceramics emerges. Um, and apologies, I'm going to briefly bring us back slightly further back in time to the 17th century, but it seems to be during the English Civil War, and especially after the execution of Charles I, and then the restoration of the monarchy in 1660, there's this sort of proliferation um, and a huge kind of market for Delftware ceramic objects that are made in London that are commemorating Charles II over and over and over again. And they're really kind of quite formulaic, but they're still really, really interesting. And actually at the v &A Museum, there's this fascinating tin glazed earthenware ceramic plaque, and it's painted with an image of Charles II sat up in the royal oak tree with uh, sort of three crimes of England, Scotland and Ireland. And the plaque itself is then set into this sort of chunk of wooden bark. 
um, which le legend sort of has it was actually taken from the original boscable oak tree that you know he famously hid in uh, during the Civil War. I'm um, slightly digressing, but I think for me, what's really interesting about that plaque being inset into that bark and the role of these commemorative ceramics is how these objects become imbued with so much meaning, but also storytelling. They can really kind of capture a particular culture or a particular political moment in time. And what's so great about our guest for today's episode, I think, is his playful but really rigorous engagement with historic ceramics and their meanings and their identities. And he then brings that into contemporary audiences through his work. This episode, we are really excited to welcome our guest, Matt Smith, who is an artist, curator and scholar. My Matt is really well known for his site-specific work in museums, galleries and historic houses. And he's always interested in and inspired by historic art collections, especially from the 18th and 19th centuries, which is why we really wanted to get him on the show. So a huge welcome. Yeah, Matt, we're so excited to be speaking to you today. Obviously, Caroline has expertise in ceramics and the themes and histories of queerness that you look at in your work uh, directly relates to some of my research. And all of us are fascinated by the idea of kind of craft and its histories and how that relates to identity. To start, Matt, do you think you could uh, talk to us about your relationship with clay and what you think that particularly brings to your practice? Yeah, absolutely. It's um, when I came to I came to having an artistic practice after being a curator um, for quite a while, and almost the reason I came to clay was much more an intellectual one than a practical one, and I was interested in the idea of uh, legacies and marking time, and. Uh, you can't really unpick it or move back in the way that you could maybe do with textiles. Once something's formed and dry, it's very hard to move backwards. So ceramics for, for me is this process of options keep getting cut down as you go along with making an object, as it dries, as it fires, as it glazes, as it, it overglazes. Um, you can't move backwards. You are where you are and you have to work with what the clay brings with it. It's, it's definitely a relationship. It's not a material that I feel is easy to get a complete mastery of. It's one that you really have to share space with and and let the clay kind of say what it needs to say as as well as as maybe telling the things you want it to tell. It's a tricky one, but it's a good one. I think it's really interesting the idea it's something so spontaneous as a material and you can train for decades and something can go into the kiln and it can explode or the chemicals might be not quite right or you know you can go through process upon process and at the end um it's collapsed or something like this and I think it's the reaction to that as an artist today and what do you do if something like that happens it's it's so spontaneous and volatile and there are so many different things that could potentially change during any firing that I think at times you just have to roll with it a little bit. I really like the idea of the kind of chemical process of the clay. 
It would be good for our listeners to set your work with clay into a slightly broader context. So how does it fit within your kind of broader range of practices? And maybe um, we could think about that in relation to the Crafts Council uh, retrospective of your work that they're putting on at the Brookfield Properties this autumn. So what kind of jumps out from that exhibition from your kind of work as a whole and how do you see clay maybe sitting within that kind of broader oeuvre? Sure. Um, the work has changed and, and developed and well the ceramics have maybe got less colourful over the last 10 years. That colour's gone into textiles and screen prints a lot more and the ideas though I seem to be coming back to the same kind of core concepts of uh, using found material and reinterpreting it, moving from historical periods into the contemporary and trying to find tangential links between historic and contemporary concerns and particularly using material culture and objects to mark those spaces in history of lives and intimacies and histories that have often been discounted or erased or, or have no place in the historic record I mean we intimately know they were there we just don't have evidence to prove they were there and and I think to a large extent my work is a marker for those lies and intimacies I really love that I don't know if you know this um quote by Martha Vicinas which is about kind of holding queer lives to like a higher evidentiary standard than straight ones but it's a really lovely kind of way of thinking about that material and the lack of evidence even though we know that um, these the lives existed. In 2010, when we did the show Queer in the Museum, it, it was surprising to have an LGBT show. Um, and I think actually these shows tend to happen outside of the big nationals quite often. The places like Birmingham and Manchester, they take the risks that sometimes escape the large uh, national museums. Since 2010, 2017 saw a massive flourishing of LGBT curating around the UK with the 50-year anniversary of the partial decriminalisation of homosexuality. And I'm thinking of uh, Claire Barlow's Queer British Art at Tate, um, the Walker Art Gallery is coming out. Really big, quiet survey shows in a way. And I think it's changed the landscape of what people think they can talk about when curating and working with uh, museum collections and and with education groups. But I think there's uh, still a massive amount for museums to do. And quite often, non-majority viewpoints, I think, rely on being told by either volunteers or people volunteering time outside of their core duties and are seldom funded in the way that other narratives might be funded within a museum. And I think, and there's, there's, there's a few of, there's a few curators who work like this where you know that they will surprise you in how they've tackled a subject. And I think the, the line between artist and curator gets blurred all the time. And I find myself slipping between the two and I see curators slipping between the two. And I really love it when we tread on each other's toes in a really nice, lovely way. I think it's where the interesting work happens. I'm, really like your point about kind of disrupting narratives and I and you're kind of talking about those in terms of 
kind of these analysis about identity and selfhood, but also kind of working with clay kind of disrupts standard narratives as well, right? Because of like, if you think about art historical hierarchies and where kind of decorative art sits on those. So I wonder if there is something about kind of working with clay, but also kind of craft practices or non kind of painting and sculpture, non kind of high art, that is there's something specific about them, kind of materiality and craftiness of those objects that makes them particularly kind of apt for doing that work, that kind of disruptive work. Yeah, I find um, it's it's really interesting. Uh, my practice often gets placed in art galleries and at work I work within a craft department and this slippage between craft and fine art and um, raises a whole load of difficult interlinking questions about functionality, uh, mass production, industrialization, domesticity, gender, professionalism, status, cost, value, all of these things are tied up in a really big complex bundle. Um, and I find myself slipping between craft and fine art depending on the conversation and the people I'm talking with or the location where the work is placed. But what I desperately, there are so many things I desperately love about craft and would fight to the bitter end in any art gallery for craft. And I think the things for me that craft, I think very much links to the personal. And for me, the exciting thing is uh, you don't need that much money or that much skill or that much knowledge to start crafting. And as soon as you start crafting, you can make something. And as soon as something is made, then it can occupy a space that's been silent or void. And for me, the joy of moving from being a curator to being an artist is that if the objects don't exist that you need to tell the stories you want to tell, as an artist, you can just make them. You don't have to wait for the auction or that unique object to come up. You can just crochet it and it can take a place within a museum and start working in the way that museums work but do the work that you might want to either as a socially engaged or an activist practitioner yeah I love that idea I particularly like the way that you talked about um kind of working within the language that the museum already works with so kind of by producing and displaying objects and then using that kind of familiar narrative to then kind of add this kind of dis these disruptive elements that's something that you've done quite a lot in your career thus far is come into museums and react and respond to collections, of course, through your time as, as artist in residence and V&A, but then also at places like the Fitzwilliam, and more recently at the Pitt Rivers Museum as well in Oxford. And you currently have a show on there called Losing Venus, and it'd be really lovely to talk to us, if you could talk to us a bit more about that exhibition and its links to wider notions of queerness, I think very much coming through in your practice, but also in the context of the Pitt Rivers Museum, it has links to colonialism. I think it was really interesting going in as, as an artist and realizing that ethnographic museums are basically comprised of three types of objects. There are, and if we're looking from a very Northwestern European curatorial point of view, and I'm, being very specific about that there are there are objects made by other people and those are nearly all handcrafted objects then the second group would be photographs taken by usually north europeans of people who aren't north european 
And then there's some ob- other objects in category three that I'm not going to talk about, but it makes it all really quite neat and we can do a little Venn diagram. But I was interested in how big a thing craft was within the ethnographic museum. And it's not really ever talked about as a craft museum. Um, what I, my starting point for working with the Pitt Rivers was I, I remember uh, seeing a performance by Bird Le Bird, who's this fantastic performance artist. And she put a map of the British Empire from about 1920 up on one screen. And then a map of countries where it's currently illegal to be LGBT on another screen next to it. And they're not exactly the same, but they're really not that different at all. And so I was interested in if I'm working with a museum of world culture, how how I can address this. Why is there a link and um, what what maybe we want to bring out curatorial about these two things being so closely linked. So the starting point for me was the photography collection at the Pitt Rivers. And I selected his historical photographs of people from countries where it's currently illegal to be LGBT or where the British imposed anti-LGBT legislation. And working in a very similar way to uh, ceramics or with the textiles, taking those photographs and erasing the person but leaving the material culture behind, leaving their clothing and replacing the actual person with a background. And these have become a series of screen prints which are just labelled with the country and the legislation that the British imposed. And they've also been blown up as, as huge banners within the space and they look absolutely great. And the aside from that is the Pitt Rivers is so busy in terms of objects that to put the screen prints up, we had to make a false wall that goes in front of some of their objects for the screen prints to come on, go on. So it's, it's a bit like the Soam Museum with the Hogarth prints where you have to open a wall to see other objects behind. And, but the, um, the other part of the Pitt Rivers show was trying to work out how in terms of making, and craft, could we start, could I start addressing this relationship between British expansion and colonialism and the erasure of LGBT identities? I was really fortunate that one of the spaces where there you can actually put objects still in the Pitt Rivers has a direct sightline to the objects that Captain Cook brought back from his expeditions in the South Pacific. So I thought there must be some some link here. And reading into Cook's voyages, I mean, it's such a gift for an artist. He was paid by the British government to map the transit of Venus. So he was paid to go and study the goddess of love moving in Tahiti. And then once he got there, he was then given a separate set of instructions by the Navy to go and find land elsewhere in the South Pacific. So this looking for the goddess of love led on to colonial expansion, taking over territories, and would then within a hundred years lead to the implementation of homophobic laws. So his journey to find the goddess of love, we could argue actually led on to the British erasing ways of loving around the world. And that led on to me making a, a Wedgwood dinner service which maps the territories that Cook explored and, and laid ownership over, along with uh, classical imagery of Venus, the goddess of love. 
So very much playing on Catherine the Great's frog service that mapped out ownership of land within the British Isles, but transporting that into ownership of land around the world. Presumably then this is the losing Venus where your title comes from, which I was, which I did wonder at the very beginning when I saw the title. And I think it's so such an important subject and clearly something to deal with very sensitively, but also emotion, there's an emotional reaction, I think. And that's the main, I think, comes across very much in your work more generally as well. And perhaps in craft as a whole. I think there was dealing with colonialization and post-colonial attitudes. I've, I've, I've tried to tread very carefully and I've been, um, I've thought a lot about, God, am I the right person to do this? And I think I keep coming back to the British colonial project was the product of thousands of people doing small acts together. And actually, if we want to unpick it, I think it needs to be the work of thousands of people unpicking bits of it. And I don't want that work to be the burden of people who have suffered most at the hands of British imperialism. So I, I don't know. It's, I think it's a really difficult area, but I feel the more we do sensitively, maybe the better things might be. Yeah, I think that, that makes a lot of sense. I'm going to ask a question that isn't on the list, if that's okay. <gasps> no, uh, it's, <laughs> on, it's on the list. <laughs> but I was just wondering about when you're talking about kind of land ownership and the ownership of land, and, the, and you're talking about the Wedgwood ceramics that you made as well. And I wondered if the, this connection about land and colonialism, but with clay specifically, if clay is a particularly apt medium for thinking about land because it is land itself. That's really lovely. Um, wow. I, what a lovely, lovely question and way of thinking. This is such a great idea, actually, to think about it like this. I mean, for me, I came to ceramics uh, you know, relatively a young age growing up kind of in the middle of nowhere in Ireland and actually living very close to a ceramics factory called Bleak, Bleak Porcelain Factory. And actually, I think there is something about that place, that space that maybe we could think about a bit more in terms of the materiality of the clay and where it's coming from. So Bleak is right on the border. It's in Carney Fermanagh in the north of Ireland, but it's also in the cusp of the southern border and you know just that space is such a contested area in so many ways and particularly in terms of the recent history of Northern Ireland that actually thinking about clay and and building up these identities through that that's really exciting yeah there are there are artists working with ceramics where it's particularly about where the clay came from and there's some beautiful work and my, my mind's gone blank on all the names. There are artists who very much, it's the specificity of where the clay comes from. And that hasn't so much to date been part of my practice, but I do love that really tying in of, of where the material comes from as part of the narrative of the object that results. So just going back to this idea of kind of responding to objects, that are already in the museum with your own works. I think that kind of nicely relates to this, to your kind of dual role as both artist and curator. I'm interested in hearing a little bit more about how you kind of see the differences, but maybe also the kind of comparable 
methods and comparable approaches and what you think the kind of two disciplines might learn from each other yeah it's 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 interesting having having worn both hats and and switching between them i think almost the the most obvious thing to say is is the freedom that you that i feel as an artist is much greater maybe than the freedom i felt as a curator and i think i'd really encourage if curators possibly can, to give themselves that freedom to be playful and to not play by the rules and because i think it opens up for fun and enjoyment and interest for people that well traditionally curators would very much be governed by dates or agreed histories and agreed narratives objects can be cut across in so many different ways and links made in so many different ways that it's unlimited and i think um i just my call out for all curators is just to be more playful and let themselves make it up a little bit because people quite like stuff being made up <laughs> and you know that playfulness of we all know this is not the normally accepted way of discussing objects or linking them but it can be really good fun and it can open up uh new and important ways of seeing objects although i think even when i worked as a curator i i think i continually wanted to see how far things could be pushed and, and so if just a few curators could do that that would be great and enough <laughs> but you also and i think it's interesting cuz you also kind of you also have a kind of third role as a kind of scholar and kind of researcher as well which to me kind of unites those two things that you do this very kind of research intensive praxis which looks a lot at kind of queer histories and it's very although playful it's still very kind of deeply researched and which is similar to kind of the kind of work that's done as a curator as well i guess i think it's i quite often i'm dealing with difficult subjects or subjects that aren't traditionally talked about in museums and as much as possible i want to get it right and i want to be able to defend my decisions and for a lot of people having viewpoints that aren't the traditional white pale stale and male viewpoints are challenging and i really feel uh that other narratives deserve to be spoken about and also deserve to be researched and uh argued for and i think to be honest that for me to be able to do my job i need to have my ducks in a row so that if there is any comeback from people about why are you talking about this underneath the playfulness there is that hard academic rigor that actually points to exactly why this is being done and also why sometimes the rules need to be changed with lgbt history unless you are criminalized or medicalized the state is not going to record your intimacies and therefore we need to look at historical records in a very specific way if we're going to let views other than heterosexual lives come into the historical record so i think that that it's understanding why history and material culture is the way it is and why we might need to question it or look for gaps uh if we're going to do a more accurate presentation of of the past and open up the past for different people yeah i think the idea of not being deferential to the historical record or what survives and thinking about why that's true is so important and i think the the other one which i 
I've yet to really tackle hugely is class in the UK that a lot of, especially the decorative and fine art collections are, uh, they're the dust catchers of the very wealthy and they're beautiful and I love them very much. But I'm interested how, how we use these collections, but make them accessible to everybody and not a sense of kind of it feels like a safari to the very wealthy lands within the UK and what we do about that and how we talk about them. One of the advantages of ceramics, I think, as a material and a medium is that there is an everyday quality to it and everyone in every household will have some sort of ceramic that's been passed down or a sort of awful 1960s wedding tea set of some sort of sentimental value perhaps there whereas not everyone obviously has prints or paintings on their walls um so i think ceramics maybe is a way of addressing more directly those underlying class structures that we do find so we've reached the point in the podcast where we ask our guests to bring along an object or an artwork of particular interest. So Matt, can you please describe for us what object you've brought and maybe say something about where it sits within your work and your practice? It's a customised television from Nyman's house, which is in Sussex near Gatwick Airport. And it's, I guess it's a 1960s bulbous television screen which has been put in a customized wooden stand with four legs and has a little baroque wooden pediment at the top of it and then in front of it are they're so beautiful they're handmade I guess silk red uh, curtains with gold fringing that kind of frames the television at the top and the side so it becomes almost like a little theater piece and I love this for many, many different reasons. One, it's very much the handmade and the customized. And the re- the history behind it, it was customized by Oliver Messel, who lived at Nyman's as his kind of summer holiday home as a child. And he customized it for his mother, who didn't like televisions. And the reason I was drawn to it, I remember going to an exhibition at Nyman's about Oliver Messel, and there was a photograph of him and he was in quite a coy pose and the exhibition talked about him being a theatre designer. There was just enough that it piqued my interest that this didn't seem like a straight man's history and then I walked through the house and saw this television and it was kind of like okay now we know he's not a straight man and when I was working with Unraveled Arts we ended up working with Nyman's house and We addressed Oliver Messel and his sexuality and his long-term relationship with Vaughan Rees Hansen as part of the exhibition. And for me, this television, it just marks whether you want it to or not, whether their family want it to or not, whether the National Trust want it to or not. This television marks this as a queer space. And I think when objects speak of identity and belonging and being, so loudly then uh they bring a particular joy for me to the world that's so fascinating and i like that it's almost kind of accidentally it accidentally kind of fulfills those functions right because you said it was made because he wanted to kind of disguise the look of the television it has a kind of practical function but then it kind of also fulfills all the all of these kind of ideological kind of qualities as well and you can kind of extrapolate what you want from it and that's sort of what you've been talking about objects as having the potential of doing all the way through 
And yeah, and I think we almost, um, I think in academia, we haven't necessarily been that good at being honest about this, about um, if you feel it's true, then it probably is true. And that doesn't really boil down very well in academia. But I think I'd love to see us trust our instincts more, that if it speaks loudly to us, then maybe we should be listening to that as much as what we can find out in the written historical record about objects. Yeah, I love that idea of letting objects tell the story and trusting, almost just trusting your gut to go along with it or try and discover and delve into that object and ask the questions of it that maybe someone else won't ask. I think it also, I think drawing on what you've just said, Caroline, that it shows how sensitised we are. So the second object is a sound suit by the artist Nick Cave, not the musician Nick Cave, which would be a very different sound suit. It's kind of, it's almost like a, a full body stocking that covers the head as well as the body. And then a, a kind of oval shaped plane that goes from about the belly button up about a foot and a half above the head. And it's been embroidered with beads and sequins and fake flowers. And it's a lot. It's an absolute lot. And you can see that the, you can see the silhouette of the arms and the legs, but the face is almost hidden within this overall mass of fake flowers. I come back to Nick Cave's work a lot. It, it speaks of so many things both obliquely and also quite explicitly. And it speaks of ideas of, uh, I guess, West African ritual, but also carnival. It speaks of camp and performance. And what I love is while these are handcrafted, often with ceramics, they're made to be worn by performers. So they, they become activated when they're inhabited by actual bodies and danced in. And it's this idea of craft going from a static object to part of a performance that I'm really drawn to. And it's something I haven't worked with myself yet, but I'm kind of drawn back to this almost perversity of uh, craft, which is so often linked to function being used in, in an outfit which is there to function in a performance, but not to function in any way that we would normally expect a crafted object, which would usually pour or hold or or make us warm. It just works in a completely different way. And they're also just beautifully joyous and over the top. I think there's something about the performance aspect of ceramics, even going back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of like the performance of clay or how it can or maybe at times cannot perform within the kiln or within the studio as time moves on go through the process and ceramics the making of them but then also in an image like this the wearing of them is really fascinating to see it come alive almost and god wouldn't you love one to wear i mean just around the house on a saturday night just relaxing. Sorry. So for our listeners, we will be putting up these two images um, that Matt's chosen over on our Instagram account. So you will be able to see them and enjoy them as we have. But that brings us to the end of our discussion. Matt, thank you so much.
You've been listening to the Travelling Sisterhood of Art Historians podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram and don't forget to subscribe.